Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Do you remember the case of NFL quarterback Michael Vick and his huge dogfighting operation? In April 2007, more than 50 dogs were seized from Bad News Kennels in Virginia by the Sheriff's Department. A few months later, Vic and his three co-defendants were criminally indicted, and on August 24, 2007, Vic pleaded guilty to conspiracy charges and also admitted to helping kill six to eight dogs by methods including hanging and drowning. Vic was sentenced to 23 months in prison and was released after serving 18 months, after which he resumed his NFL career with the Philadelphia Eagles. But what happened to those dogs rescued from Bad News Kennels? Well, a new documentary film called The Champions is the inspirational story of how these dogs, viewed by most as dangerous and incapable of being rehabilitated, were able to live normal, happy lives as dogs. How is this possible? And what obstacles were overcome to allow this result? I'm very pleased to welcome producer and director of The Champions, Darcy Dennett. Welcome to the program, Darcy. Thank you so much for having me. Darcy, what inspired you to make this film? I was the series producer of National Geographic's Dogtown. I spent two and a half years working on the series at Best Friends uh, Animal Society's Sanctuary in Southern Utah. So we were actually on the ground when the case broke and 22 of the dogs that were considered most challenging arrived at the sanctuary. Um, and at the time, nobody knew how long the dogs would be there. Two of the dogs that arrived at Best Friends were court-ordered to stay at the sanctuary for life, but the other 20, um, you know, nobody really knew at the time how long it would take for them to be rehabilitated and possibly find their way into adoptive homes. So have you been following the Vic case since it broke in the news several years ago? Well, because I was so closely involved in the case when it first broke, and we followed four dogs really closely during the course of Dogtown, I certainly kept up with what was happening with the dogs uh, over the course of time, and the series Dogtown drew to a close, but I was aware that many of these dogs were going into adoptive homes across the country, uh, but that nobody was really following the story. Um, and I had the sense that it was an incredibly inspirational story um, of these dogs that, that overcame so many odds that were stacked against them. These were dogs that both the Humane Society and PETA thought at the time should be euthanized. And so against all odds, these dogs ended up at Best Friends Animal Society and at organizations like Bad Rats in Oakland, California. Um, and a, a few other smaller rescue groups who believe that the dogs deserve a second chance. Um, and I just thought that, you know, there's so much attention and focus on Michael Vick, but nobody was really telling the story of these dogs. At the time the dogs were seized, describe the attitudes of the general public concerning what to do with the dogs and how to handle them. When, when the dogs were first rescued, um, I, I think that, you know, these were pit bulls rescued from Michael Vick's dogfighting ring. I think that the perception was that these were deadly killers. Um, there was a lot of fear surrounding what these dogs would do. Um, there was a lot of media surrounding the case. At the time, I didn't have a lot of experience with pit bulls. You know, I was working on this series with Best Friends Animal Society, and they work with quite a few challenging dogs. Um, but I've never, you know, when the dogs first arrived at the sanctuary, I was nervous filming around them because I really didn't know what to expect. Um, but as it turned out, I think that really 
the majority of these dogs really suffered from a lack of socialization or um, positive experiences around other human beings. And so really, I think that what, what we and best friends and the other groups who stepped in to help these dogs found is that really the preconceived notions about what they would be like actually had nothing to do with what they turned out to be like in reality. Now, the film follows the individual stories of a number of the dogs. Why don't you share one or two stories with us, Darcy? I think one of the stories that resonates most with people is a dog named Cherry, who we follow from the time that he first arrived at the sanctuary all the way through to the time that he ends up in in an adoptive home um, in Connecticut. Cherry, when Cherry first arrived at Best Friends Animal Society, he was so terrified he couldn't even walk. He would flatten down like a pancake and refuse to move. And um, trainers at Best Friends Animal Sanctuary spent months working with Cherry, just trying to get him to the point where he would be comfortable sitting in a room with a, with a human being, oh. um, working to get him to the point where he would be comfortable being touched, um, where he would actually get to the, he actually then would get to the point where he would solicit attention from another human being. So after months and years of this patient work with him, finally, he was one of the first dogs that was considered ready to go to an adoptive home. Um, the adoptive families were, incredi- were vetted incredibly carefully. It was harder to adopt one of these dogs than it probably is to adopt a child. Yeah. Um, there were so many hoops to jump through. Um, and so the families were very carefully chosen. And Sherry ended up going to a wonderful family in New England where he's really, his, the transformation that he's made from a dog who was so incredibly shut down um, because of the abuse he'd suffered at the hands of humans to the point where he's learned to trust again um, and lives happily in an, adopt, an adoptive home, to me, is just incredibly inspirational that these dogs um, were so traumatized, yet Cherry managed to sort of get past that and to learn how to trust humans again and to live a happy life, to me, is really the the heart of of what the story about these dogs is um, and why I think it's inspirational, because it's a story that I think people can also relate to. Um, Everyone has something difficult about their past that they have to get through and get past in order to to move on and to live a happy life. And that these dogs have been able to do that so well, I think, is remarkable um, and a real testament to their strength and resilience. Darcy, so it's almost 10 years after this fighting ring was busted. What has changed in terms of our views on dog fighting and our attitudes about pit bulls? I think a lot has changed in that time. Um, At the time that this case first broke, dog fighting was not a a felony. Michael Vick actually uh, served almost two years in jail for conspiracy charges. But at the state level, he didn't serve any time for cruelty to animals, um, which most people aren't aware of. Now, um, dog fighting is a felony, um, and people are serving time in jail for five years and even more. Um, and I also think that there's just so much more awareness that pit bulls are dogs just like any other dogs, um, and that with the proper socialization, care, love, training, that they're really just like any other dog. 
Um, there are so many myths about pit bulls that are out there that they don't feel pain, <laughs> that their jaws look like a, like a vice, but really they're dogs like any other. Um, and, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago, I live on the Upper West Side of New York City, um, and over the course of time that I lived in New York City, I just see more and more responsible dog owners who have pit bulls um, that they're walking at the end of their leashes here in the city. So pit bulls used to be considered the all-American dog, and I I really hope that they're on their way back to taking that spot in our culture. Agreed. The film is called The Champions. Darcy, how can people view this film? (laughs) Thank you for asking. Um, The film um, is available on iTunes. And Amazon, um, you can purchase a D- Blu-rays or DVDs with extras on Amazon. And also you can find the film on Netflix. And if you go to our website, championsdocumentary.com, you can also download the film there um, and help spread the word by joining our Facebook page and our Twitter page, which you can join through our website. Director, producer Darcy Dennett, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio. Today's Animals Today fun facts are about penguins. Specifically, the world's biggest penguin, or at least the fossilized remains of it, were recently discovered in Antarctica. 37 million years ago, a giant penguin, almost 7 feet tall, inhabited the rocky shores and the seas. Scientists believe this huge aquatic bird would have been able to stay underwater 40 minutes or longer, allowing it to hunt deep sea fish. The second largest penguin ever discovered was merely 5 feet tall. And there are your Animals Today fun facts for today. That is the sound of a dog whose vocal cords were cut just to stifle her voice. It's called devocalization, and it's done to cats as well. Devocalized animals rasp and wheeze, cough and gag for the rest of their lives. Some are rendered mute. And for what? So a commercial or hobby breeder can keep many animals without having to listen to them? So show dogs will be quiet during transit between shows or in the ring? So an irresponsible pet owner can leave a dog alone for hours every day. Animals Today says shame on anyone who would have a dog or cat devocalized and shame on the veterinarians who perform this unnecessary, inhumane surgery on them. Please speak out against devocalization of dogs and cats. Use your voice to protect theirs. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. 
For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Welcome back. I want to continue on our theme of what happened to the dogs of Vic's Bad News Kennels from an angle you probably have not heard about before. I want to welcome Rebecca Huss, who is a law professor at Valparaiso University. Rebecca served as the guardian special master of the dogs in the Bad News Kennels case. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, Rebecca, were you following the Vic case from the onset and describe being contacted by the U.S. Attorney's Office to assist in this case? Actually, I had been contacted by a local newspaper when uh, Mr. Vic was arrested to get a comment, and I actually referred the reporter to a colleague of mine who does sports law, because at the time it seemed to be more of an issue of what would happen if any gambling charges would have been brought against him. At, the, at that point in time, there was no question about whether the dogs would be treated any differently than other dogs in these types of cases. So it really wasn't an animal law question at that point. But it did come back to you. So what in your background was pertinent? I believe that the reason why the U.S. Attorney's Office contacted me was a few years previously I had written an article discussing the relationships between animal control authorities and shelters. So it seems that it showed some expertise in the relationships between shelters and animal control and how to deal with rescue organizations. Yeah. So this position as guardian and special master, it's, it was a new sort of idea, isn't it? been some limited cases where an individual might have been appointed as a guardian. And certainly we have pet trusts that are legal in almost every state now, if not every state. There's been some recent changes in that. But to have a full-scale rescue of the dogs was really something very different. And I attribute that really to just the public outrage about this particular case. Explain how your getting to know each dog as an individual was so valuable in getting the dogs to their best locations. And, and if you would, talk a little bit about Tim Racer's role in this regard. So I'm not a behavioralist. I'm a lawyer. And I knew when I was asked to take on this role that I would need to rely on the real experts. And so Tim Racer is one of those. He's worked with dogs for many years. His organization, Bad Rap, has a lot of experience with dogs, and they had actually pulled dogs from fighting cases on an individual basis before this case. So when I was appointed as a guardian special master, I reached out to Tim Racer and Donna Reynolds, who are part of the film, and asked them whether it would be possible for one of them to be part of my initial evaluation of what was going on with the dogs. And when I say evaluation of the dogs, uh, keep in mind I'm not saying I am doing the actual behavioral evaluation. I am actually 
asking questions of the shelter workers, and of course, in the case of these particular dogs, have Tim Racer or another some another person with expertise and behavior to recommend what should happen with the dogs. So I take all the information that's been provided to me, not only what I saw and what I experienced at the shelter and what the shelter workers were telling me, but also the ASPCA group's evaluation of the dogs to try to match up the best place for each dog to go. Now, since the dogs were legal evidence, you really weren't able to speak freely to the press in real time as this was occurring. Did you have a sense of what the public wanted done with the dogs? So there's a couple things that go along with the, the role of the dogs as evidence. Initially, before the federal government had custody of the dogs, the dogs were in the custody of the state authorities. And then the, the federal government got involved in the case, and the federal government initiated what is called a civil asset forfeiture provision. And that provision in the Animal Welfare Act, which is the federal law governing dog fighting, prohibiting it, of course, provides that if the federal government believes that the animals were used in a criminal enterprise, that they can essentially take possession, have the title of the animals transferred to the federal government through a particular process. So there's a notice and process for people to assert claims for the animals. The Animal Welfare Act is a little bit unique in that unlike other types of civil asset forfeiture that people might be familiar with, the Animal Welfare Act currently provides only that the animals involved in any potential dogfighting venture be be seized by the government. So the federal government's right to do anything with the animals doesn't happen until that asset forfeiture provision all the requirements for that have been met. And so by the time that the ASPCA group went in and did the evaluations, title had actually transferred to the federal government. So at that point in time, then the federal government has the ability to decide what to do with the dogs. Before that time, they don't have any authority to do anything other than maintain the evidence. And of course, that means you shouldn't kill the dogs unless there's a particular reason to kill the dogs. But of course, in previous cases, there certainly can be situations where if a dog is in uh, great medical need, a, a dog can be euthanized. So that's the timeline is seizure, civil asset forfeiture process, title transferred to the government, and then the government gets to decide what they want to do with the dogs. My role as a guardian special master was to make a recommendation to the court. And again, because of the special provision that you're dealing with with the seizure of animals under the animal fighting prohibition in the Animal Welfare Act, the judge has to approve what should happen to the animals, which can be euthanization and in the past had often been the case. Were you ever worried that uh, perhaps one of these dogs would ultimately get adopted and for some reason maybe the dog gets spooked would hurt someone or bite someone, and the whole process would be looked upon with suspicion? Well, certainly every dog's an individual, and dog's behavior can change over time, and there's always a risk any time we interact with our our canine companions. But there were specific requirements put in place for the rescue organizations to ensure public safety. So the dogs had to meet certain behavioral standards before they would be able to be adopted out. 
I'm aware that you're an opponent of laws that are aimed at specific dog breeds. What does this case tell us about or how does it relate to breed specific legislation issues? Well, I think this case is a good example of why breed discriminatory legislation is bad public policy. Each of these dogs in the jurisdictions that have a breed ban would not be able to be part of that community. And as the, as the documentary shows, these are just like other dogs in the community. They might have their own special challenges, but just like other dogs in the community, you have to look at each one as an individual. So from the perspective of what this shows for general legislation, I think it's a good indication of why breed discriminatory legislation is ineffective. Law professor Rebecca Huss, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you. Listening to Animals Today Radio, your home for serious talk about animals. Now, in its eighth year, Animals Today covers all animal related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the show. Regular listeners will know that one of our more common topics of discussion here on Animals Today is pit bulls. And there are a couple reasons for that. One being that Peter and I happen to be fans of pit bulls and pit bull mixes. I just think they're so beautiful and lovable. But even more, they're just so controversial. There are abundant misconceptions about their behaviors. There are ordinances against them in cities and towns in the U.S. and Canada. Overall, I just believe, as many do, they get a bad rap. Dog fighting, which of course is illegal, the dogs employed there are, are pit bulls, not because of any innate aggression, but because their owners train them and force them to do battle. Consequently, many of them end up in shelters. Many shelters around the U.S. are filled with them, and they get euthanized in huge numbers. Last June in 2015, I broadcast a few interviews pertinent to pit bulls that I think you will find of interest. Victoria Voith is professor at Western University of Health Sciences, and her primary area of research was in visual breed identification of dogs. And she got interested in this topic when she was working at various shelters and noticed that there was a diversity of opinions of shelter workers when trying to identify the makeup or breed of dogs. So she studied the relationship between the visual identification of the dogs, what breed a dog or mixed breed a dog is, determined by someone's perception, and the identification of the dogs determined by DNA. And her studies showed that most of the time, in fact, 75% of the time, there was misidentification of the dog. So what a person thinks a dog is by their looks did not match the DNA of the dog 75% of the time. 
She explained that people working at shelters or rescue groups are often required by management to try to label or identify the dogs that enter the shelter. So they're instructed to pretty much guess what they think the breed of dog is, or at least guess at what they think its predominant breed is, and then call it a mix of that breed. And she says what people do is they look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed, and they identify it with that purebred dog. And there are harmful consequences of mislabeling or misidentifying dogs. It might affect the success of the adoption of the dog from the shelter, right? A dog labeled as, let's say, a pit bull mix might not even be considered by some adopters when looking for a dog at a shelter. Misidentification of dogs can affect how dogs are treated by the shelter workers. Maybe the shelter has a policy that certain breeds of dogs are considered less adoptable and therefore euthanized earlier than others would be. And misidentifying dogs might affect how the adopter treats that particular dog. And as you probably know, there's legislation that subjects certain breeds of dogs to discrimination, like being prohibited from apartment buildings or even banned in towns and cities. And this might cause people to relinquish or return their dogs back to the shelter. So mislabeling dogs can indeed have negative consequences. Victoria spoke a little bit about breed-specific legislation, which is typically created to increase public safety by decreasing number of dog bites. But she explained the problem is that the data we use to make these laws or policies are based on people's perceptions of what the dog breeds are, which could have been tabulated from vet office records, emergency room records, shelters, and really we have no idea as to how accurate or valid this information is when they are entered in the databases or written in the research papers. For instance, say data is obtained from emergency room records, people coming into the emergency room because they were bitten and are being treated for a dog bite. And the ER has to record the dog bites that they see. They record the the number of dog bites that they treat. They will ask you the kind of dog or breed of dog that bit you. And again, this information is based on someone's perception, which as she showed is more times than not inaccurate. So can you really say that pit bulls bite or attack more than other breeds of dogs? And we know breed-specific legislation almost always pertains to pit bulls or pit bull mixes, and that is a problem in itself, she explained, because first of all, we don't even know what a pit bull is. It's really not a breed. It's a, a term used for a particular phenotype based on a, a look of the dog or a specific feature. Moving on to another researcher I spoke with last year, Lisa Gunter. Lisa conducted some studies to show how our perception of specific breeds of dogs and how our perceptions about the characteristics of individual dogs can be influenced by many factors. In one of her studies, participants were shown pictures of three kinds of dogs, a Labrador, Border Collie, and a Pit Bull type dog without labels. So they were shown pictures of these three dogs and asked about their perceptions of the dogs, specifically the dog's approachability, intelligence, aggressiveness, friendliness, adoptability, and difficulty to train. And what she found was the Pit Bull was rated unfavorably in every characteristic. The lowest rating in friendliness, adoptability, approachability, and intelligence, and highest in aggressiveness and difficulty to train. So the pit bull was the least attractive dog compared to the Border Collie and Labrador. But then what she did was she placed a handler with the dog to find out if a picture of a handler with the dog affects the person's perception of the same dog they just saw. 
So she compared how they rated the dog when the dog was alone in the picture compared to when a handler was with the dog. And specifically with respect to the pit bulls, the participants were shown a picture of a pit bull and an elderly woman, a pit bull with a rough looking adult male, and then a picture of a pit bull with a child. And in fact, there was a big difference in the ratings when there was a handler with the pit bull. Specifically, the pit bull's ratings improved when the dog was photographed with the elderly woman or the child. It improved the dog's approachability, friendliness, adaptability, and intelligence, and decreased the aggressiveness. So obviously, this can be applicable to shelters. I mean, if you run a shelter and your goal is to increase the chance of your pit bulls or pit bull mixes of being adopted, then you can improve the attractiveness of the dogs to potential adopters if the dog were photographed with a specific handler. Okay, so next, since we know by Lisa's study that pit bulls are viewed as least attractive dog when compared to other kinds of dogs, and because visual identification of a dog is not accurate, Lisa wanted to see what happens to pit bull dogs if they were labeled differently, not as pit bulls. So she had the photographs of the pit bull type dogs and she found their lookalikes, right? So she found dogs with very similar stature, color, head size, coat length, and photographed these lookalikes, but labeled them as some other breed, like shepherd or boxer, but not as pit bulls. So you have these Two sets of pictures, very similar looking dogs, pit bulls and their lookalikes, but one labeled as pit bulls and the others labeled something else. And what she found was the dogs labeled as pit bulls had three times the length of stay in shelters as compared to their lookalike dogs. So here again, labeling a dog as a pit bull decreases the dog's attractiveness. And related to this, and this is very interesting, a couple years ago, the Orange County Animal Services in Florida wanted to see what would happen if they removed the breed labels of the dogs housed in that shelter. So potential adopters would come in looking for a dog. They could meet the dogs. They can get to know them. They can get to know their personalities. But the dogs had no breed label attached to them. And no breed or type of dog was written on the kennel card or adoption profiles. And Lisa analyzed this data and compared, and if I'm remembering correctly, two years worth of data. The first year was when the dogs were labeled, and then the following year after they removed the labels from the dogs. And what Lisa found was when the labels were removed, adoptions for pit bulls increased by 72%, and there was a 12% reduction in euthanasia. But also, all dogs in the shelter benefited when labels were removed, with an overall 30% increase in adoption. Now, you should know there were other operational changes occurring at the shelter at this time, like they were advertising more, they had expanded their operating hours, but the benefit for the pit bull group by removing the labels was much larger than what the other groups of dogs had seen. Also, the average length of stay decreased without the breed labels for every group of dog as well. Very interesting stuff, right? Okay, since we're talking about pit bulls, let's talk for a minute or two about breed-specific legislation. Breed-specific legislation are laws and ordinances aimed at forbidding or regulating dog ownership based solely on breed or type of dog, typically done with the intention of reducing dog bites or dog attacks. Examples of breed-specific legislation, Denver and Miami had a ban on pit bulls, meaning it's unlawful to own or possess a pit bull. In San Francisco, legislation is in place that mandates the sterilization of pit bulls. 
A few years ago, an ordinance was passed right here where I live, in unincorporated areas of Riverside County, similar to San Francisco, that requires pit bulls and pit bull mixes to be fixed. According to one of our prior guests, Stacy Coleman, who is executive director of the National Research Canine Council, whose mission is in part to publish accurate, documented, reliable research to promote a better understanding of our relationship with dogs, it's been shown that breed-specific legislation does not enhance public safety or reduce dog bite incidents. And many people do believe this, as I do. And there's this growing awareness now that breed-specific legislation not only does not improve community safety, but are costly to enforce, penalize responsible dog owners, and harms their companion animals. And of course, it stigmatizes the breed of a dog. And the NCRC states that the trend in prevention of dog bites continues to shift in favor of multifactorial approaches focusing on improved ownership practices, better understanding of dog behavior, education of parents and children regarding safety around dogs, and that the truly effective laws hold all dog owners responsible for the humane care, custody, and control of all dogs, regardless if your dog's a pit bull or a cute little Pomeranian. But as you can imagine, this is a highly debated topic, and pit bull terriers are in fact the most controversial dog alive today. You know, through our history of pit bulls and gang culture getting intertwined and the purposeful breeding, training, and abusing these dogs to fight and become vicious and aggressive, you can see why these dogs are stigmatized. And not only that, the media will perpetuate the stereotype because when pit bulls do bite, it's much more widely reported than attacks caused by other breeds. And this has resulted in many neighborhoods and apartment complexes and cities and counties imposing bans on pit bulls and pit bull mixes, citing them as inherently dangerous to the public. But as I mentioned, we are seeing this growing evidence that these bans are not working in terms of enhancing community safety, and the repealing of pit bull bans has been on the rise. And I'll tell you, pit bulls, in my opinion, are highly misunderstood dogs. And just as every person is an individual, each dog is an individual and shouldn't be judged because someone guesses at their breed label and shouldn't be judged based on a physical trait or physical appearance or their past history, we should be evaluating and treating each dog, no matter its breed, as an individual. So, Peter, we talked about September being Save the Koala Month. Yes. There are two other animal holidays I'd like to mention. Okay. One is National Iguana Awareness Day, September 8th. Peter, you've seen an iguana, right? Yeah, I, I know about them. So they, they're these big greenish colored tropical American lizard with a spiny crest along the back. Yeah. I knew a guy who had one as a pet in his apartment room. Really? Tell me about that. It was pretty silly. If you ask me, you've got a grown man. He must have been older than 30 years old at the time. And he's got a tank, you know, maybe a hundred gallon tank or 80 gallon tank with this large, it must have been a two foot long 
lizard and that's like his his pet and that's this lizard's life is to just live in this in this tank once in a while i would let it out and to explore the room and it just looked miserable yeah so i don't know why people want iguanas as pets but i there's something alluring about them well national iguana awareness day september 8th in honor of that i thought we'd talk a little bit about iguanas green iguanas and i got the following interesting facts about green iguanas from a website page i found called hayden's animal facts but here are five interesting facts about them they are very big lizards growing up to two meters long they often live near water so that they can swim away from predators i didn't know they swim yeah i know isn't that interesting and despite how scary they look they Mm -hmm. they do look sort of scary they only eat plants including fruit flowers and leaves and are very docile so people often keep them as pets unfortunately like your friend young green iguanas will often eat the poo of grown-up iguanas to get the necessary bacteria required to digest their food and finally they are a very common species and are found in central and south america and many caribbean islands they also have been introduced to parts of the United States. Okay, that's everything I need to know about iguanas. Thank that's you. That's it. That's okay. exactly right. Another notable animal holiday in September is International Red Panda Day, September nineteenth. Like oh, they're very cute. Yes, I don't know anything very about them. Very cute. Though. If you've ever seen a picture of a red I, panda, yeah, I had my Facebook profile picture was one of those cute little things some time ago. Okay, well, that animal, the logo of the internet browser Firefox. Oh. Right? That's a red panda. I didn't know that. Firefox is one of the nicknames of red pandas, and it's called Firefox because of the reddish fur and the fox-like snout. I also read that the red panda is commonly called the wah because of the wah call that it makes. Oh. You know, I did, uh, you told me you were looking at red pandas, and I did listen to some of their vocalizations Does it sound like a wah? I didn't really get the wah. I did get a couple of bark-like sounds, and then I also got this sort of high-pitched screeching sort of sound. It sounded almost bird-like. It was annoying. They call that twittering. So they are the size of a raccoon and weigh about 7 to 14 pounds. So this is about 5% of the giant panda's weight. And by the way, they're not closely related to the giant panda. Mm. Taxonomically, red pandas aren't actually pandas at all. Do you know where you find red pandas? I'm going to guess China? Yeah, native to the eastern Himalayas and southwestern China. Male red pandas will fight with each other by standing on their hind legs and boxing with their That's claws. Cute. Okay. <laughs> it looks cute, doesn't it? These rare animals will eat fruit, berries, blossoms, insects, and bird eggs. But what do you think they primarily eat? Oh, let's see. If I was, I would want to eat a mouse. Bamboo. Oh, yeah, funny. panda's daily diet consists almost entirely of the leaves, stems, and shoots of various bamboo species. This reliance on bamboo makes them vulnerable to any loss of their habitat, currently the major threat to their survival. I read poaching and habitat loss have left only 10,000 wild mm. adult red pandas remaining in the world. Unfortunately, not that surprising to me. Lori, recently in the news, there have been a number of really sad stories about the effects of xylitol, particularly when dogs are eating xylitol. They get very sick and sometimes die. And in fact, the FDA has just released a consumer health information bulletin talking about xylitol and dogs. And you can review this at fda.gov slash consumer. 
but it's a pretty comprehensive uh, warning about all the foods that contain xylitol, including chewing gum. And I'm going to talk about the specific brands of gum in just a minute, so you can be aware of that. But the xylitol is really dangerous to dogs. You know why? Because it causes a strong release of insulin from the pancreas in dogs, but not in people. And this causes profound decrease in blood sugar, and that can come on in just a few minutes and can be life-threatening. Symptoms of xylitol poisoning in dogs includes vomiting and then decreased activity, weakness, staggering, incoordination, collapse, and seizures, and death. So if you even think your dog has eaten xylitol, you want to bring him or her to the vet or animal hospital immediately. Even before showing these symptoms. Even before. And they may want to keep your dog there for 12 to 24 hours to monitor to make sure this uh, doesn't occur. And, you know, interestingly, cats really don't care to eat xylitol. So it's not really a problem with, with them. So what are some of the foods containing xylitol? Well, the items, I'll say, are some sugar-free candies, uh, toothpaste. Some human toothpaste contains xylitol, so you don't want to let your dog near that. And that's the other reason why you don't want to brush your dog's teeth with human toothpaste, by the way. Mouthwash, some nut butters. That's a new thing. Some of these nut butters have added xylitol for sweetness. But the biggest offender appears to be chewing gum. So don't let your dog near chewing gum. And mints too, right, Peter? Yeah, you bet. Some sugar-free mints are sweetened with xylitol. So here are some of the gum brands that contain xylitol. Spry gum, Epic gum, Mirident, Trident and Trident Fusion with xylitol, Trident Extra Care, Icebreakers, Ice Cube Sugar-Free, and Zelly's Xylitol Gum. So be careful. Don't let your dogs near any of those products. Lori, you know, explosive sniffing dogs have become the gold standard, the best method for detecting explosives at airports, making sure they don't get on our planes. A recent investigation looked at the success rate or the failure rate of tests to see how accurately the dogs and their handlers can detect explosives. So they obtained information from January 1st, 2013 through June 15th, 2015, and that yielded a total of 402 tests at major airports around the country. 87% of the time, the dogs passed. Unfortunately, they missed the rest of the time, but the best performance appears to be the team at Hartsfield-Jackson-Atlanta International Airport. They only had two failures in 75 tests, 3% failure rate approximately. So here's the thinking about what makes an excellent canine and canine team. First is that you really need daily practice. It also means the handlers need to constantly practice their skills of reading the dog's cues. Just having the dogs work at the airports since they detect explosives so rarely is not enough to keep them sharp. So you need to work with real explosives practicing all the time and the teams really need to be sharp and the protocols need to be constantly evaluated and modified to make sure that the best performance possible is achieved and thank you for tuning in to animals today this is dr Lori kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet the animals 